This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by All Are Wrong Todays, a new novel by Elon Mustai. Andy Weir, author of The Martian, calls All Are Wrong Todays a thrilling tale of time travel and alternate timelines. Learn more at alanmastai.com. So that's E-L-A-N-M-A-S-T-A-I.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com galaxy and entering the promo code galaxy. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 241 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is James Glick. He's a best-selling science writer whose books include Chaos, Making a New Science, Genius, The Life and Science of Richard Feynman, and The Information, A History, A Theory of Flood. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Time Travel, A History. And if you like time travel, I hope you'll check out my short stories, The Second Rat, about a man who can rewind time, and Power Armor, A Love Story, about an inventor from the future who never takes off his invincible armor. And you can read both of those stories for free on my website over at davidbarkertley.com. And today's show is brought to you by All Are Wrong Todays, the debut novel from Elan Mastai, whose previous work includes the screenplays for What If, starring Daniel Radcliffe, and The Samaritan, starring Samuel L. Jackson. And here's a description of the book. It says, You know the future that people in the 1950s imagined we'd have? Well, it happened. In Tom Barron's 2016, humanity thrives in a techno-utopian paradise of flying cars, moving sidewalks, and moon bases, where avocados never go bad and punk rock never existed because it wasn't necessary. Except Tom just can't seem to find his place in this dazzling, idealistic world, and that's before his life gets turned upside down. Utterly blindsided by an accident of fate, Tom makes a rash decision that drastically changes not only his life, but the very fabric of the universe itself. In a time travel mishap, Tom finds himself stranded in R2016, what we think of as the real world. For Tom, our normal reality seems like a dystopian wasteland. But when he discovers wonderfully unexpected versions of his family, his career, and maybe just maybe his soulmate, Tom has a decision to make. Does he fix the flow of history, bringing his utopian universe back into existence, or does he try to forge a new life in our messy, unpredictable reality? Publishers Weekly writes, An imaginative debut novel, Mastai has fun with all the usual conventions of time travel and its many paradoxes, and the cherry on top is his dialogue, reminiscent of Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And physicist Sean Carroll writes, Time travel bends our minds, and in the right hands it can tickle our funny bones. All Are Wrong Today's is a twisty, provocative, creative tale of one person at the center of multiple branching timelines. It's an extremely enjoyable way to get yourself thinking about our world and the ways it could be very different. So again, the book is called All Are Wrong Today's, and you can learn more over at elonmastai.com. So that's E-L-A-N-M-A-S-T-A-I.com. All right, and so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with James Glick. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so first of all, just tell us about your path to becoming a science journalist. Oh, well, that was kind of an accident. I, I, only, I only intended to be a journalist, and, I've, and a long, long time ago, I started working for the New York Times and drifted and really drifted into writing about science. I started writing feature pieces for the Times Sunday magazine about scientists because I liked it, I guess, because I was interested in it and they seemed to have an appetite for it. Um, and I didn't have to compete with people who, <laughs> you know, if I'd been writing about the mayor's office, I would have had too many other people to compete with. Right. But you didn't have any sort of scientific background, right? No, I really didn't. I mean, I was interested in science as a kid, but I kind of avoided it in college. And, um, but I must be interested in it because then I seem to have written a few books about science. I mean, so when you say you started writing about scientists, who were some of the first couple scientists that you covered? Well, the the very first was who I wrote a, a big 
turned out to be cover story about for the Sunday magazine was Douglas Hofstadter, who had just published his great first book, Gertel Escher Bach. And it was a big surprise bestseller. And I loved it. And I, but I also sort of felt that he wasn't, even though it was very popular, I felt I understood things about it that, um, I felt I had something to add to the discussion about the way he was, the things he was telling us about the nature of consciousness in particular. And I, then I wrote a piece about Stephen Jay Gould and I, uh, I wrote pieces about weather forecasting. And then, um, then I, I wrote a piece about Mitchell Feigenbaum, who was one of the first chaos pioneers. And the thing that attracted me to him was I'd heard that there was this guy at Cornell who was, a specialist in the mathematics of chaos, whatever that meant. I had no idea what that could be, but it sounded great. <laughs> and so I wrote this piece about him and um, and then immediately started to think about whether there might be a book there. And then the next, the next person I profiled, not by coincidence, was Benoit Mandelbrot, the father of fractal geometry. And um, I knew about Mandelbrot. He's a household name now, but he was not then. And I only heard about him because Feigenbaum told me when I was writing about him that he, here was this other guy who was not exactly doing chaos, but I might find him interesting and, and thought-provoking. And, of course, everything Mandelbrot was doing in fractal geometry was a part of the same story that became... That became my book, Chaos. So was that intimidating going in to talk to guys like that? Yeah, it, well, it was intimidating and, and exhilarating at the same time. It was intimidating because I, I knew I, I had to gird my loins and, and ask what I knew were likely to be stupid questions and then ask them again and again until I started to get some glimmer of understanding. That was, that was my basic methodology. And... Um, you have to you have to be willing to accept a certain amount of humiliation i guess but but it's not so different from what a reporter does you know with every subject you know that's the thing about being a reporter is you don't if you knew everything to begin with you wouldn't have to do the work right and you were saying that there wasn't there weren't weren't so many people doing this sort of science journalism at the time not as much um the New York Times itself had, I think it was the only newspaper in the country that had more than one specialized science reporter. And there weren't that many that had even one. But the Times had a whole pretty large staff of eight or ten people. And I wasn't part of that staff. I was I was downstairs working as an editor on the city desk and doing this in, in my spare time. <clears throat> I only I only joined the staff, the science reporting staff a little bit. Um, after I after I started working on this chaos book, after I finished the chaos book, in fact, um, and there were, of course, popular books about science. Um, some of which influenced me. I mean, some of which I I really loved. I mean, I, I already mentioned. Doug Hofstetter's book, Gertel Escher Bach. Now that's, that, there's a book. That's not science reporting. He was a, he was a, a scientist writing about his own work. That's one category of writing about science. Science journalism was a, was a different category and there was less of it. Now there's, now there's much more. I feel we're now in a golden age of, of science writing. Um, people who are writing now for, for not just the older established magazines and newspapers, but also the new new online things that are that are popping up, like Nautilus and Quanta. Um, some of these people are incredibly talented. Um, yeah, much more than anybody in my in, in my ancient era. Okay, so you you started working on this chaos book, and did you know early on that this was going to be a big hit, or did you think it was just going to be a sort of, you know, more specialized audience? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I I knew I was writing 
I, I knew I wasn't writing for a specialized audience because I wasn't a specialized audience myself. I was just being a reporter writing about something that that absolutely fascinated me that that nobody knew anything about. Um, I mean, I told my friends I was working on a book about chaos. And, you know, people now have heard about chaos theory or the butterfly effect. These things have really entered the popular culture. But uh, I had a, I had one friend who... Um, told me only after the book came out, she admitted that she had thought for all those years that I was working on a book about gas. <laughs> so then so then there was a big response to the book when it came out, right? Like, what was it like for you when the book got all this attention? Well the book the book did very well and and it was my first book. So that was good. But I was still working at the Times as a science reporter and I'm and I um, wasn't at that point making enough money to be able to afford to quit my day job. But but I did I did start to look around for a second book to write, and um, that that book turned out to be my biography of Richard Feynman, who also is much better known now than he was then. I mean, I saw it in, on Wikipedia. It says that Michael Crichton was inspired by your book Chaos to for some of the stuff in Jurassic Park. Do you know how much do you know about I, that? Well, I don't know any more about that than than what Wikipedia says. I mean, of course, I I read Jurassic Park at the time and I saw the movie. I've never I never met Michael Crichton. I, it's certainly it's it's pretty obvious that um, that his his character, the chaos scientist, played in the movie by Jeff Goldblum, so memorably, <laughs> is speaking lines that reminded me of my book but um yeah and so that was great i mean that was part of the process of of the ideas of this science entering the popular culture another uh, much better ex example much more beloved by me anyway is tom stoppard's play arcadia which um which was uh, which i can say was was inspired by my book because he because he has said that it was and um and he writes more, more, so much more beautifully than I was ever able to about um, not just chaos, but also entropy and thermodynamics and um, all kinds of other scientific ideas. It's it's really been inspiring to me to read read people like him to read what artists are able to do with ideas from from science. Right, and so I'm also I'm also just curious with Michael Crichton or with you. You said that you you like the the Tom Stoppard more than Jurassic Park. Do you have any um, issues with the way that chaos theory was portrayed in Jurassic no, Park? No, no, no. That's not. I, I'm not. I don't mean to snipe at Jurassic Park. I I mean to. I only say that by way of um, expressing how much I admire uh, Arcadia and and Tom Stoppard's other work. Um, a lot of his other work is inspired by science too. I, I mean, don't you feel this is tr this is true these days that the what used to feel like a, a a kind of barrier between science and the arts has gotten very permeable, and there's a lot of a lot of cross fertilization. I think I might have just mixed some scientific metaphors, <laughs> um, and well, later you and I are going to talk about time travel. That's part of the subject of my time travel book also is the permeability of those, those barriers and the, and the way the ideas go back and forth between those two worlds. I, I love that. And, um, you know, I'm, I love it as an outsider you know, I, to, to say it again. I, I was a journalist. I'm not a scientist and I'm not a, I'm not a, um, literary artist. And, uh, those are both, parts of the culture that I admire enormously, um, like a kid peering through the glass, you know? Well, no, I, I absolutely agree with you that I think science fiction is playing a bigger and bigger role in inspiring science, you know, inspiring people to go into science and inspiring scientists to think in new and creative ways. I mean, I don't think there are any scientists these days that didn't read a lot of science fiction growing up, none that I've ever met anyway. Yeah. And also, I should also say the line, uh, and I, I, hope you'll agree with this, that the lines between science fiction and so-called literary fiction are also have practically disappeared. Uh, I mean, um, it used to be that those were 
at least thought of separate as separate worlds. And and I, I don't think they are now. I mean, I think some of our, our greatest writers are perpetrating what may as well be called science fiction. And some of the people who are happy to be pigeonholed as science fiction writers are also fantastic uh, literary stylists. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, sort of the great mission of my life was has been to break down that barrier. And it sort of fell before I quite got to the barricades. So uh, I guess I'll have to come <laughs> right. up with a new mission now. But um, but yeah, so let's let's talk about time travel. So have you um, have you always been interested in time travel or sort of when did that interest first uh, come? Well, I don't. Yeah. Yes and no. I don't think I haven't. At least I wasn't consciously aware of being interested in time travel, except that I always liked that kind of story. I always got a little extra thrill out of that kind of story. My my earliest memories of reading science fiction are um, when I was a teenager were mostly sort of space travel. Um, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, um, kind of basic stuff that I know the the science fiction aficionados you know kind of sneer at. Um, the kind of vanilla stuff that teenage boys would would go for, where the hero is a a kid running away from home and and hoping to be a space pilot. But but every so often you would run across by those authors and others a science fiction story that had to do with time travel. And those, I think, um, unless I'm projecting backwards, even at the time I thought those were especially curious or spooky or mind bending. Mind mending might be the right word. The most interesting and and thought provoking. Well, I mean, I I mean, I grew up reading Asimov and Heinlein, so I don't sneer at those guys. I, I love that stuff. Um, <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, and yeah, and I definitely want to talk particularly about Heinlein as we go. But I'm just sort of curious. So you had read Asimov and Heinlein and that stuff, and then so then when you decided that you wanted to write this book about time travel, I assume you read a lot more stuff, right? How did you go about deciding? or finding the things that you were going to read for research? Uh, that's an interesting question because part, well, there, part of it was, you know, stuff I was, I happened already to be a fan of. And part of it was stuff that I had to learn about. And I learned about things in, in very different ways. For, for example, um, well, I should say that I knew that the process was going to be, I haven't said anything about what the book is, but so if the book is a history of time travel as an idea in the culture, and the book begins by claiming that this idea essentially started with H.G. Wells in 1895 with the time machine, then the question is, how did we get from there to here? How did this idea evolve and find all the different variations and permutations that it's it's taken and and that process didn't happen overnight and it was years before it was years after the time machine before before people started churning stuff out that became um a, a genre the tropes of which we're very familiar with so so p- part of the answer is i looked historically i went back looked at early books and early magazines, pulp magazines from New York, where this genre was being born. But another part of the answer is there were things that I knew about. I mean, I always, for example, I loved the movie 12 Monkeys, um, uh, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, and it, I'm sure you are, and it has, it stars Bruce Willis and, um, Bruce, the world has come to an end and the movie starts and Bruce Willis is a kind of unwilling time traveler being sent back um, on a mission to the past by these sort of murky, mysterious, semi-sinister people who seem to live in caves or something. Um, And the movie has an ending that is so wonderful and has a twist that... I don't want to even give away now, you know, years later, even though most of most of you probably already know what it is. But what I didn't know is that when I started working on my book is that that movie was essentially a remake of a, a, an incredible French, early French film called La Jetée that is only a half hour long and is composed 
almost entirely of still images and is by him is made by a mysterious Frenchman with a mysteriously American sounding name of Chris Marker. And I only learned about that movie because William Gibson told me about it. The William Gibson himself, the great science fiction writer, when I told him that I was working on a book about time travel. Am I, I think this might have been a footnote in your book, but am I, I remembering, am I remembering this right, that that filmmaker had been like a resistance fighter and always wore a mask and people thought he was an alien and stuff like that? Yes, stuff like that. That's him. He had a, he kind of, um, he maintained an air of mystery about himself and never wanted to be photographed. And um, was, was always a little bit on the fringes. Um uh, there's much more about there's much more about him in my in my book. I won't go go on and on about it too much. But but if you haven't seen La Jete and anybody who's listening who hasn't seen La Jete, it's it's much more available now than it was even when I started working on my book. I had to I bought it. I bought a um, DVD of it. Uh, and I'm sure that's still available. But I think you can even watch it now on the Internet. And it's it's just a magical, magical black and white exploration of memory um and it is also a profound and profoundly original time travel story with a brilliant and sad twist right and so one thing that i really had not appreciated until i read your book was just how much the concept of time travel had to be invented and that I mean, it sounds like literally, you know, if you if you go back 100 or 200 years before that, there literally had never been a story about someone who, for example, traveled back in time, changed something, and then returned to find to the present to find that things were different. That just nobody had exactly. come up with that story. No, never. Not and and it took and it took a long time even to work that out. And and so that was why that was what made the whole project so much fun for me was watching this, you know, watching all of these ideas come together bit by bit. And and we are so expert in time travel. And by we, I don't just mean us uh, who happen to like science fiction. I mean, everybody who's born into this society knows about time travel. I know six-year-olds who argue at the breakfast table about paradoxes of time travel that, um, that would have taken an hour to explain to somebody in the 1930s. And how do I know that it would have taken an hour to explain? Because you can go back and you can look at the stuff that was being written and everything has to be explained so carefully. The the original Time Machine by H.G. Wells, everybody thinks they've read it or many people think they've read it. And and partly that's because there have been so many movies or TV shows that sort of either are the time machine directly or are based a little bit on the time machine and use H.G. Wells as a fictional hero. Um, it's a very old-fashioned book when you sit down to read it. And one of the things that's old-fashioned about it is you, you realize that because there's never been time travel before, because there's never been a time machine, the first thing H.G. Wells has to do is explain to his readers what this whole book is going to be about, or he can't even start the story. He wants to tell a story that involves a guy going to the future, and he wants to show us what this time traveler sees in the future. But first, he's got to get the guy into the future, and nobody's going to believe him unless he explains. So the time traveler uh, invites, and the, the time traveler doesn't even have a name. He's just called the time traveler. He invites his friends into his drawing room. This is the opening pages of the book. And he sits them down and he says, now I'm going to tell you some things and you're not going to believe me at first. <laughs> it's going to require some explanation. But And first of all, everything you think you know about time and everything you think you know about geometry is wrong. And then he tells them that time is really a fourth dimension. And so if time is a fourth dimension like space, there's no reason that we can't move through it just the way we move through the other dimensions. And, you know, then they say, well, you know, what do you mean? The third dimension is up and down and we can't really move through the third dimension very well. But then they have balloons and they have elevators. And and you realize as a 21st century reader that um, 
that the whole world we know is being invented back then and that everything is brand new. And for me, that was just just tremendous fun. Well, right. So, so Wells writes this story about a a person traveling into the future, and then he has a friend, E. Nesbitt, who says, well, that was cool. How about I'll put a new twist on that. The person will travel into the, the, we'll have some characters travel into the past instead. Yeah, exactly. E. Nesbitt, she used her initial because her name was Edith and she was a woman. And, you know, so that was, that was a problem. And she was a younger uh, acquaintance of Wells. He, he visited their house and they were fellow socialists and, and it's sort of, it's, I wonder how many of our listeners r- realize that Wells himself never had his time machine go back into the past. You'd think that would be an obvious thing to do once you've got this machine that can go both ways. But he didn't bother. And uh, Edith Nesbitt was writing books for kids, for children, and children were her heroes. And she wrote a, a, a series of books in which the children travel back to the past. And now they don't have to bother with a time machine. They have a magic amulet. And they get a sort of they get sort of fractured history lessons of the kind that are that are familiar to us now if we remember um, uh, Sherman and Mr. Peabody, or is no P, Mr. P, yeah Mr. Peabody and his dog Sherman and their Wayback Machine, and they also use time travel to tell sort of silly history lessons and and. And if you don't remember that, you remember Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's the genre. And and Edith Nesbitt invented it. But as soon as you start um, writing in that genre, if you're an imaginative person, as a fiction writer automatically is, you start to ask yourself questions that didn't occur to H.G. Wells. What if I change something? Then what happens? So, so Edith Nesbitt has her kids meeting Julius Caesar, and they, the first thing they do is say, "Oh, don't conquer Little England, you know, that's where we live." But then they think, "Wait a second, we need him to conquer England, or our present might not be the same," and it gets it gets confusing, and paradoxes ensue. Right. And it's interesting to see some of this play out in, you know, Hugo Gernsback founded the first science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories, and he would encourage his readers who were mostly teenage boys to write letters. And so you can see some of these, you know, the grandfather paradox, you say, comes up for the first time in, in these letters columns. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they had to they had to really work out the details and they had to they in a, in a sense, you can see them writing the rules. You know, there are there are rules that now nowadays or. Well, people are pretty good at breaking rules too. But you sit down to write a science fiction story and and a time travel story, and you sort of know what the rules are. One of the rules seems to be nobody cares what the energy source is for your time machine. You know, I don't know why this is. In space travel, a lot of attention is paid to what how the spaceships tend to be powered. <laughs> <laughs> even if even if it's you know an imaginary warp drive they have to invent a lot of language and they have to you know mine materials and they care about power but in, with time machines they just go they just get up and go and i think that's because hg wells didn't worry about energy and so nobody else has ever had to but there are a lot of other things that you have to worry about and one is what if you meet yourself you know then what what would that be like then what happens? And I spend a certain amount of time in my time travel book recapitulating, go, re, going back to a wonderful story by Robert Heinlein. We mentioned him earlier, so now we're, we'll come back to him. And I must have read this story when I was a kid, um, but it was it was all new to me when when I reread it. And the story is by your boots, by your bootstraps, or by his bootstraps. And the original title was Bob's Busy Day. And we start with Bob sitting behind his desk. And he's apparently working on his dissertation or something. And it's got a, it's got a ridiculous pompous title having something to do with time. And a hole opens up in the air behind him and another man pops through the hole. And this man taps him on the shoulder and says, hi, call, <laughs> call me Joe. Says, don't don't worry about that thing you're writing. It's it's a lot of nonsense, and it's not going to do you any good. 
and they take it from there. But we realize, because we are experienced readers, that Joe and Bob are the same person. And then the phone rings, and a third person says, don't listen to Joe. You know, he's going to tell you to walk through the hole in the air. Don't do it. And of course, that's that's Bob number three. And before we're done with the story, there are five versions of Bob running around, colliding into one another. It's like a madcap farce with doors opening and closing at just at just the right time. And there's a hat that gets thrown from one place to another and from one era to another. And it's all it's all wonderful and it's all funny, but what was also really fun for me was sort of watching the wheels turn in Bob Heinlein's head as he works out the mechanics of his own story. And there's a great, um, I, I came across a wonderful little pencil and paper diagram that he wrote uh, with a lot of zigzagging lines to kind of help him help himself keep track of of where everybody was going and where they were reappearing in the past and the and and the future, and he had to imagine then what it's like for Bob number two, who's being told by Bob number three um, that they've met before. To think, well, wait a second, if I've had this conversation before, shouldn't I remember it? And one of the Bobs actually does remember it. And so it's natural for him to think, well, if I had this conversation, now can I say something different or do I have to follow the script? So willy-nilly, we're now talking about the, the great profound philosophical questions of free will and determinism. And I don't think... Robert Heinlein said to himself, well, I'm going to write a story about free will. <laughs> I mean, I know he didn't. He he was writing for one of these pulp magazines and uh, and getting paid a, a paltry amount of money and and pounding out the stories at high speed on his typewriter. But but he was a, a smart, thoughtful guy. And he followed he followed the the logic of his story where it led him. And it led him into into deep, deep um, swamps of philosophy. Well, right. And so then Heinlein has written this story by his bootstraps and then a couple of years go by and he thinks, well, I can top that with this story, All You Zombies, which I never knew this, but you say was actually rejected by Play- Playboy magazine because the sex was too over the top. <laughs> well, it is pretty, it is pretty over the top when you think about it. It has a, well, the plot is, is a completely transgender and, Heinlein, in this case, he must have decided, all right, what can I do to top everything that everybody else has been doing now? Uh, we've, I've had my character meet himself and get into fights with himself. Now I'm going to have my character fuck himself or herself. And they do, or she does, or he does. And he and or she gets pregnant and gives birth to him and or herself. And so he's got to be thinking nobody's ever going to top this, right? And it's you know somewhere along the way there has to be a sex a sex change procedure. Um, it's it's a pretty complicated story, and I've made it sound it's actually uh, it's actually less comical and less farce like, and more tragic and sad than the earlier story it it goes off in in surprising directions and it's and it's really a wonderful story and and just a couple of years ago there was a remake of it i believe starring ethan hawk but now you'll have to you'll have to check me and no, or fill, right, in the, yeah. fill in the answer later yeah the the predestination is the film it's actually pretty good yeah okay um, perfect there you go um, but so, yeah, so, so now people are getting into just crazy sort of pushing the logic of these weird time loops and everything as far as they can go. And I don't know what you would say the farthest this has been pushed has been, but a couple examples that really stick in my mind is you mentioned Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And I've just always loved the moment in that movie where they, they need to uh, break all the historical figures out of the police station, but they don't have the keys. And so they say, well, after this whole adventure is over, we'll get in the time machine and we'll go back in time and steal the keys and then we'll leave them for ourselves. And they say, where should we leave them? Well, how about behind that sign? And they go and look and up there are the keys behind the sign. Uh, 
and uh-huh. you're just getting into crazy stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's the paradox, and and there are so many of these paradoxes. You started by mentioning the grandfather paradox, where the time traveler is supposed to go back in time and and kill kill her grandfather, and then as a result of that, of course, the time traveler can never have been born, and then so who killed the grandfather? And um, when you when you think it through carefully. I guess I argue that they're all the same paradox. It's all a single paradox of causality. And causality is, at least our conventional ideas of it, are violated by time travel to the past, um, if you allow the time traveler to change anything. So, um, so the fun is to, is to do the paradoxes in different ways and, uh, and to hide the trick. And there's another one, um, there's another one in this year's movie, Arrival, which is very tricky and misunderstood, um, I believe, by most people who see it. And it's it's marketed as an alien adventure story. Have you seen it yourself? Oh yeah, no, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So you so you know what I mean that there's a a, a it, the heart of the movie is a time travel twist, and um. You know, I sort of again, I probably shouldn't shouldn't totally give it away, but uh, but I know from experience that a lot of people who see the movie don't quite get it, even when the movie is done. Um, I hope that doesn't sound patronizing. That's just that's just a fact, and it's the only uh, you know the, the reason I I I'm not being patronizing is that I, I saw the movie having already read the short story it's based on by Ted Chang, um, story of your life, but I believe it's yeah, called. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so I knew the trick before I saw <laughs> yeah. the movie, but there is a trick and it's the same. It's the reason I'm rambling on about it is it's the same time travel paradox that you just talked about from Bill and Ted, only it doesn't involve keys, <laughs> but in this case it involves, what would you say? A phone number, on a cell phone. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I had the same. Uh, yeah, the phone number on the cell phone it really is the equivalent of, you know, where should we hide the keys? <laughs> no, I mean, because, uh, uh, you know, we talked about that movie on the show and with a bunch of my friends, and we'd all read the novella. Um, but then I heard from my parents that a lot of their friends were just completely baffled by the movie and had no idea what was going on. So. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think I, I wrote a piece about it for the New York Review of Books, and I pointed out in that piece that um, that the same twist, it's a, it's an, a version of a time travel trick that goes by very quickly in, in another movie, which is Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. And here the, it's just a gag. It's it's a it's the, the joke is that the Woody Allen's hero, Gil, who goes back to Paris of the 1920s and 30s meets the filmmaker Louis Bunuel as a young man. And he has the brilliant idea because he has seen Bunuel's movies <laughs> of giving the young Bunuel the idea for his own movie. And so he explains this movie plot to Bunuel that involves a bunch of people trapped in a room after a party. And, and of course, because it's a Woody Allen movie, the joke is that Bunuel doesn't doesn't get it and keeps saying, but that doesn't make any sense. Why don't they all just leave the room? <laughs> no, I, I love, that was such a funny scene. I love that so much. Yeah. Um, well, it's actually speaking of arrival, though it was funny because this idea of the aliens that exist that perceive time differently than we do is an idea that goes back to um, Kurt Vonnegut and the Trail Famidorians. But I didn't actually realize until I read your book it actually goes all the way all the way back to Edward Bellamy. Um, had had the idea that humans are the only species in the galaxy that doesn't perceive time all all is one that we're the only ones who perceive time linearly you could argue that it goes back theologically to the christian bible where satan is the person who is able to stand on a mountaintop and see all of history at least in one version of things but and then of course you have to ask it becomes a theolo- theological question. Can't God see all of history at once as preordained? And um, I, th- I believe that theologians differ on that question. You know, it's, it's entirely plausible to say 
that because God is omniscient, of course, the future is open an open book to him. But then if you look at, you know, God at work, so to speak, if you believe in an interventionist God intervening in the course of history, why does he bother if, if he knows that everything is preordained? So again, you can't, you can't avoid the paradox. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we've mostly been talking about a particular kind of uh, time travel story where essentially any information you get about the uh, past or the future is set and you, and that can't be changed. And then there's also another sort of second kind of time travel story where you can change things. And um, Ray Bradbury's Sound of Thunder is sort of the classic example of this where people go back in time to hunt dinosaurs and one of them steps on a butterfly. And then when they return to the present, the present has been completely altered by this very tiny change in the distant past. Right. Uh, right. And so lots of people know that story very well. And and so there was a, a, a you know, a gag going around this November saying somebody must have somebody must yeah. have really gone off the trail <laughs> and, and done some some bad stuff in the in the uh, Mesozoic era. And, and we're, we're all paying for it now. And yes, um, so there's a version of the story where Ray Bradbury thinks, and again, it's an example of somebody both following the rules and rewrite and breaking the rules, rewriting the rules that have that have been written before. Um, there have there were versions of of time travel history where people thought, okay, maybe you can change the past, but the overall course of human history will just repair itself and and get back together. Isaac Asimov's book, The End of Eternity, basically makes that case. You know, they they make little nudges to change history, but but the idea is that you can't change the really big things just by messing around with little things. But Ray Bradbury took a different approach and and essentially invented what chaos theory 20 years later named the butterfly effect. And, and he invented it by having his time travelers. I mean, it's sort of, sort of pathetic when you think about it, that his, his, the use his people put time travel to is to, is to, um, is to market fancy safaris for big game hunters who are bored with Africa. So they get to go back to, the era of the dinosaurs and shoot dinosaurs. But, but the rule is they're not allowed to shoot a dinosaur unless it's a dinosaur that's about to die anyway. And they're required to stay very carefully on the, tr on the trail and not disturb any living thing because it is understood by the masters of time travel here that there could be unexpected effects in the future. And sure enough, somebody clumsily steps on a butterfly and as a result the presidential election of 20 whatever it is is changed for the worse and we all live on happily ever after right and you say that on this point and i agree with you that asimov is wrong and bradbury is right that making a <laughs> tiny change in the past would be like an avalanche it would be like rolling a stone down a hill that sets off an avalanche yeah and now so okay before I sound like too much of a jerk, I shouldn't. Um, when I say he's wrong, I don't mean that I have any scientific proof of that. But what I what I would say is that our understanding of how complex systems operate um, has been advanced. Has been we've been educated by the the we've, we're getting back now to the subject of my first book to the pioneers of the of chaos sciences. Um, who proved mathematically that that in many kinds of complex systems, nonlinear systems, small perturbations can have enormous consequences a very short time afterward. And so that's why we've all heard so much about the butterfly effect, which is not put in terms of the butterfly in the dinosaur era, but um, the meteorologist Edward Lorenz's idea that a butterfly flapping its wings on one side of the earth on Tuesday can actually alter the course of a hurricane on the other side of the earth a month later. And that kind of thing, 
that kind of scientific claim can be tested mathematically, and it and it turns out to be true. And it's the reason that no matter how powerful our supercomputers get, our weather forecasting is still such crap, because um, because small perturbations have enormous consequences in these systems. Now, so the question is: Is the course of human history a nonlinear, complex system analogous to? the Earth's climate, that I can't give an, a, a definitive scientific answer to, but I can certainly say that, that many scientists feel that it is uh, that kind of system. And so if it is, yeah, then then the right kind of change at what some science fiction writers have called a nodal point in history could have enormous consequences down the road. I think it depends. I think that's a good point, too, that time could operate by some very weird principles that we're not aware of. And I mean, I'd never heard of this story by William Ten, The Brooklyn Project. But this is really interesting because this story posits basically that you think that time can't be changed. But it's just because every time you ta- you change time, you don't remember. Your memories are rewritten, essentially, to right. believe that things have always been the way they are. So the scientists in the exactly. story all... Yeah. Yeah. So th- that's another way to sort of let the par- the paradox play out. I mean, um, again, I say it's a paradox because let's con- consider the Ray Bradbury story. They the time traveler steps on the dinosaur. Now the election has been changed. But who knows? Who living in the present is aware that the election has been changed? Because if everything has changed, we shouldn't we shouldn't remember that. So maybe time travelers are constantly going back and changing things, and we're just not aware of it. You sort of have to cheat to have somebody who is outside of the frame of the story, who who has enough awareness to remember both the previous course of history and the current course of history, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so in... In this uh, Brooklyn Project story, the cheater is the narrator, because the nat- you know, or the us, the reader, we're not in the story, and so we can be told that even though the cat- characters in the story didn't realize that their time traveler did change history, we, the reader, can see that they did change history. Right. I mean, my big problem with so many of these stories where someone will, for example, go back in time to kill Hitler in order to change the course of history is it seems like aren't you killing, in effect, everyone in the present by doing that? Because none of those people are going to be born. If like a, ch- a change that big is going to change everything that happens after it and who meets who and who has kids with who and so on. And you're going to end up back in the present with all a completely different population of humans than everyone that you knew will be gone. Yeah. Isn't there a, there's a show on that, uh, that I haven't watched very much of this fall. I, I think it's the show. Now, you'll have to correct me again. Is it the show called Timeline? And it's one of the network TV shows where, again, the time travelers, there are two sets of time travelers. And one is the bad guys are trying to muck around with history and the good guys are trying to repair things. For, I, I for exactly I, that. I, I've, I've heard of the show, but I haven't watched it. Yeah, for exactly that reason. I mean, you start to think, well, you know, either you kill Hitler and other people are going to die inadvertently, or you prevent the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And maybe, you know, you think you're doing good, but law of unintended consequences, um, people will die as a result. It's, it's, um, I guess we realize that we ought to be careful if we ever find ourselves in the lucky position of being able to change history. But as you, as you've already noted, it was, it's too tempting um, not to want to kill Hitler at least. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you were there and you had the chance, well, everybody asks the question. They were asking it during the, during the presidential primaries. Would you, would you kill, kill baby Hitler if you had a chance? And then of course, we devolved during the summer into asking whether if you had the chance, you'd teach baby Trump some manners. <laughs> well, I mean, but that brings us, I guess, then to the next category of time travel I have on this list, which is the branching timelines, where you go back in time to kill Hitler and you succeed. And the timeline in which Hitler rose to power and all that still exists, the one that you came from, and now this new path in which Hitler has died and the consequences from that uh, head off in this different direction. Um, right. Yeah, that's interesting. And and there. OK, so, so there are several interesting things about it. One is um, 
this idea of alternative universes, multiple universes, it's another idea that you can sort of trace back. And, and it starts in various ways. One thing is people wrote what they wrote in a genre that we can now call alternative history, where the storyteller is saying, well, what if history happened in a way that's different from the history we know already? And then, and a great example of that is Philip K. Dick's story, um, which has been now turned into a TV series. And come on, help me with the, the, the name. man in the high castle. The man in the high castle. And so in Philip K. Dick's story, American history has been changed by an assassination of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and the Nazis have won the war and the Japanese have won World War II. And, you know, so what would that be like? He's a, he is asking. And Kingsley Amos um, in the 1950s wrote a story uh, the, with a very high concept alternative history of essentially, you know, what would modern history be like if the Reformation hadn't happened? Um, uh, but then in a whole different place, you have um, Jorge Luis Borges writing his short story, The Garden of Forking Paths, um, which sort of explores philosophically the idea that maybe the universe is made up of, of all different possibilities somehow coexisting. And, and he imagined this, this kind of wacky philosophical fantasy before modern quantum physicists started talking quite seriously about the possibility that our universe might be, um, a set of multiple universes uh, all brought into existence by quantum events, each of which causes a fork in history. In one timeline, Schrodinger's cat is dead, and in the other timeline, Schrodinger's cat is alive. And that's how you resolve the paradox of Schrodinger's cat. So um, once again, the fun for us, I think, is, is to watch people take the ball and run with it. And, um, you know, one person who's who's currently running with that particular ball is William Gibson, who I, who I mentioned earlier. And his, his most recent, um, his most recent novel, the peripheral does exactly what you said in your question. It, it posits the idea that you change the past, you existing in the future, change the past. And when that happens, the existing future remains but the alternative history becomes a separate timeline, which he calls a stub. And both of these worlds exist. And then can they communicate with one another and can one affect the other? And um, it's another, it turns out to be very rich, you know, fertile soil for um, imagining, uh, for imaginative storytelling. Right. And so on my list here, I actually have those as two different kinds of time travel, because I think the implications are completely different of the possibility that every time you go back in time, you create a new branch versus every possibility already exists somewhere in space time and you can move among them. Because, uh -huh. because, for example, if you go back in time and create a new branch, one implication of that is that you should go back in time as often as possible to create as many worlds as possible and give life to as many people as possible. Whereas if everything already exists... One possible implication of that is that nothing you do is of any moral consequence because you're not actually changing anything that exists in space-time. You're just choosing where you happen to be within it. So you should maximize selfishly whatever um, position is most advantageous for yourself. Yeah, no, go on. I love that. I mean, that's, that's right. There are, you know, you can't avoid thinking about these things in ethical and theological terms right away. What's the, what's the right thing to do? What would you do if you were God and you had the opportunity to create a new universe? I mean, you, ju you just implied that that's automatically a good thing because you're giving new life, but maybe you're creating a terrible universe where people are suffering. I guess that that's case, a good you're point. You're, maybe you're Satan in that case, by definition. <laughs> yeah, so you'd have to make sure to only change. Well, so yeah, how are you going to do I I, th I still think, though, I don't know. That's a, an ethical issue, though. Is it better for people to not exist or to exist? Like, how, how much suff How much? How bad does the suffering need to be before it's worth it for people to not exist at all? You know. 
Yeah, I hope you're not asking me because I'm not going to touch <laughs> that one. Um, yeah, so there, there's a lot we could go into there, obviously, but we're running a little short on time here. I did also want to mention Stephen Hawking has this funny line where he says that we know that there's no time travel because we haven't met any time travelers from the future. Yeah, which, and as you know, he threw a, he threw a party or <laughs> pretended to have thrown a party where he sent out invitations and announced a date in the past and said, time travelers, welcome. And then he said, well, see, nobody showed up. See, but my problem with that is that it's possible to imagine that time travel works in a way that would make it not possible for people to come back to us, but time travel would still be possible. So, for example, maybe you need to build a gate and you can, you know, you, so you build a gate. This is actually, there's a Ted Chang story, um, The Merchant and the Alchemist Gate, where time travel works like this, where someone builds a gate and then someone from the future steps through it. And then however many years go by, and then that person steps through the gate and becomes the person who steps through the gate initially. But so you can't travel back in time any farther than the construction of the gate, because there's no gate uh-huh. earlier in time for you to get to. Right, exactly. And, and in the, along the lines of people following rules that are, or creating rules for other people to follow, that's, the, that's a conceit that Isaac Asimov invented in the end of eternity. He has time travelers who live in this you know, quasi place called eternity, but there's a limit to how far back they can go. They can go back to their past, but not to the past before time travel was invented. And so they can't tinker with our 20th century past. They can only tinker with their, with their world. Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually curious. I have a couple. I'll mention for listeners that this book has a fairly extensive reading list of different movies and uh, books about time travel. And there were a couple uh, that I really like that I don't think are on this list. I just wanted to run these by by you and see if you've heard of them. But one I really want to talk. You're going to quiz me. (laughs) Thanks. Um, but one I really want to mention is this movie called Primer by Shane Carruth. Do you know that one? Yes, I love I love Primer, and so and I'm relieved to be able to say to say yes. I'll, I might I might say no to the next one. Uh, it's it's true that um, I have a sort of a, a fairly extensive list, and it's also true that when I put that in the book, I knew there was going to be a very good that there was it was a virtual certainty that people's favorites were not going to be on my list. And in, that's because books, things that I left off the list, in that, like, um, like that one, I left off the list just because I didn't discuss them at all. They didn't really influence my thinking. They weren't part of the story I was telling. I wanted to provide a reference to everything that appears in my story. And some of the things that appear in my story appear below the surface if you see if i can contradict myself here um below the surface meaning that i kind of thought about them and they influenced me but i never actually mentioned them so for example ted Ted chang's story which we talked about earlier is is an example of that i read that story while i was working on my book and it had a great effect on my thinking but i don't think i ever ended i mean i know that i never ended up writing about it explicitly. On the other hand, there are some things that I write about explicitly at, at some length, and we've talked about a few of them, and then there are others that we haven't talked about because you and I can't go on forever or else we'll need a time machine. <laughs> I just want to, you know, uh, you mentioned that Heinlein did the drawing for um, By His Bootstraps, and if you haven't seen it, I would recommend people go online and look up the chart like that for Primer. It's it's, it's unbelievable. There's nine different timelines and something like 50 annotations. Uh, it's, it's pretty <laughs> crazy. Right. Um, and then a couple other ones I'll just throw out are Time Crimes. It's a Spanish movie. And, no, don't know it. Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. So there's a, a guy, as I remember it, there's a guy and he's on his um, deck or something looking out into the woods with his binoculars and he sees a topless woman wearing some sort of weird bag over her head and has no idea what's going on. And we have no idea what's going on. And as the movie progresses, time travel comes in and it eventually makes sense. But it's it's really, really weird and, you know, makes you really curious about what's going on in this movie. And then um, there's a book uh, that I read growing up by one of my favorite YA science fiction authors named William Sleater. And the book is called The Green Futures of Tycho. And uh, I just love that. It's a time travel story, and I just love that so much. Cool. I don't know that one either. All right, cool. So, yeah, no, I mean, definitely check those out. So what um, 
I guess what stands out to you was your favorite time travel things that you uh, encountered in the course of this book. Okay, well, that's a, a you know I'm I'm going to be a, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be evasive. I'm not going to pick one. We've talked about we've talked about several. We talked about La Jetée, which is which is an absolutely pivotal movie that deserves to be better known. It's only a, it's only a half hour long, and we've talked about some of the great classic stories. And so let me just add one more, which I, which I know you're familiar with, and and um, that is what I think is arguably the best time travel episode of Doctor Who, the episode known as Blink, where um, the the version of Doctor Who played by David Tennant is trapped in the past and has a problem of sending messages to the future where they are received by a young woman named Sally Sparrow, who's played by Carrie Mulligan, um, the great English actress in one of her first roles. And I don't want to, I won't talk too much about the plot of the story, but, but I will say that, that something I love about it that I don't think is obvious until you think about it is how much that story is trying to talk to us about the world we live in, where we get information from the past mixed up with information from the present and information that seems to be coming to us almost from the future on all of the different screens that have become part of our network lives. So that's why that story I think has such great power besides it's just being sheer fun. No, it's a fantastic episode. And I just, it just makes me so happy to be living in this time in history where, as you say, the, art of time travel narrative has been advanced to the point where something like that can even exist and we can be here to enjoy it. Yeah, here, here. <laughs> okay, and so I promised that I uh, I would uh, <laughs> let you go after an hour, and we're at an hour now, so I'll let you go now. Do you have any final final thoughts, uh, James? Or no, James? no, it's a, it's a, it's been a it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Uh, I mean, I, I guess my book does sort of have a moral, and and the, and. You haven't asked me what it is, and I and I don't often volunteer what it is, but it's um, it's that um, you know how how people are constantly telling us you ought to live in the now, just concentrate on the present, don't worry about might have beens, don't worry about what's gone wrong, don't waste time imagining futures that might never come, just you know live in the present. Well, I don't believe that's. I don't believe in that advice. I think that that what makes us human is our sense of the past and our sense of the future and 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 one of the ways that we've learned to cherish that and and expand it is through time travel. Yeah, no, and I completely agree with that. Actually, I belong to a philosophy discussion group in New York and we discussed whether living in the now is something we should aspire to. And I was saying no. And so I, I found it validating to hear you say the same thing. And especially as science fiction fans, obviously, we live to some substantial degree in the future. And I think that's a good thing. Okay, good. All right. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, all right. So we've been speaking with James Click and this new book. Again, it's called Time Travel, A History. And so, James, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to James Glick for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Casey Santo, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I'd also like to thank patrons Andreas Belmont and Kevin Dahlstrom for increasing their pledge amounts. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Casper for sponsoring today's show. If you need a new mattress, just head on over to casper.com slash galaxy and order today. The mattress industry is famous for forcing consumers to pay high markups, but Casper cuts out the cost of resellers and showrooms and passes that savings directly onto the consumer. Your Casper mattress will be shipped to you in a small box, and all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. Casper is made of supportive memory foams for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. 
Seriously, if you like time travel, a Casper mattress will make you feel like you've been transported 1,000 years into the future of comfort. So just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. You have 100 days to try out the mattress, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will give you a full refund. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Terms and conditions apply. So remember, the address is casper.com galaxy, and you should also use the promo code galaxy, which will get you $50 off any mattress, and also let Casper know that you heard about them here. And remember that today's show was also brought to you by the new time travel novel All Are Wrong Todays by Elon Mustai. Learn more about the book over at elonmustai.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.